Welcome to Call to Action, a School Sisters of Notre Dame Central Pacific podcast. In Season 3, we will have guests join us to share how their work and their commitment to SSND's corporate stance for comprehensive immigration reform plays an important role in transforming the world through education and awareness. We look forward to discussing this topic on migration together as we stand in solidarity. Howdy, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Call to Action. Very exciting because this is our last episode of Season 3, Episode 10, where we're talking about steps in creating a workable system. Can you believe that, Sister Anna Marie? The last episode. No, I think we um, have really had quite a journey. It's been good. It has. Um, I kind of think it's fortuitous, too. Our, Our last episode, we were visiting with Sister Lucy, and talking about border ministry. So we kind of planned this out just perfectly to flow from guest to guest to guest. Yeah, I was I was thinking the same thing. It was wonderful to hear Sister Lucy talk about that experience. And so it moves us into a perfect opportunity we have with us as our guest today, Bishop Mark Seist, who is from the Diocese of El Paso. So welcome, Bishop. Delightful to be with you. It's always, I think, so important to talk about these issues from the perspective of the church, of the gospel, and to bring that into the debate. Thank you. And um, give us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and and how did you become so involved in this issue of migration? I'm still trying to figure all that out, really. (laughs) But I do believe that the Lord had something to do with it, frankly. I uh, really lived my first 18 years in the North Country. I was born in Wisconsin, west of Milwaukee. And when I graduated from the public high school out there, I was looking for a small Catholic college or maybe a seminary. I ended up finding both in Dallas, of all places. And I went down there on my own, great adventure, and entered the seminary where I remained for the next eight years. During that time, things were changing in Dallas. There was a tremendous migration, both from the South, from Latin America, and from the North and East as corporations moved into Dallas. With those two groups converging there, it became clear to me along the way that anybody who was going to be a priest in Dallas was going to need to serve all of those folks. And the more I was introduced to the Hispanic culture, the more I was enamored with it. Tremendous commitment to family, deep faith in God, the sense of community, things that almost seemed like dreams from the past were alive in the culture. So I was attracted to it. As I was ordained, A funny thing happened to me on the way to my first parish. You know, the bishop sends a letter of assignment to a newly ordained priest. I received my letter, but in the letter was something I've never seen before. And it it said, I want you to go to Good Shepherd Parish in Garland, Texas, and I would like you to start the first Spanish Mass there. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. Okay, I'm going to ask the question, had you studied Spanish yet? (laughs) Yes, but I was terrible in Spanish. I had never really studied a language, another language other than English. Uh, I managed to avoid that all of those years until it was required for college. So it was a struggle. I, I knew I wanted to learn it. I needed to learn it. But it made the situation very urgent. 
I got permission to study a month of intensive Spanish, came back to the parish, all ready to go. I, I could say, buenos dias, <laughs> and little more. But what I learned there, you know, the, the people in the parish said, this is all very nice, young father, but there aren't any Spanish-speaking people here. And and I said, well, yeah, but the bishop said so. And and so I began offering the mass, my very halting Spanish. And little by little, people began coming out of the woodwork, as it were. I was only there for four years, but about six, seven years down the road, the parish was celebrating 11 masses on a Sunday. The church was really relatively small. And nine of those masses were in Spanish. So they're there. When people ask me how you got into this, uh, one of the best answers I think I can give is to say, everything I learned about being a Catholic, I learned at Mass. It's just part of our DNA to welcome people. And if anything, the poor among those people we welcome are the ones that deserve the greatest care and, and love. What else can we conclude by reading the gospel? You know, it's just, it's just simple stuff, really. In my early days, my main involvement in terms of social justice was actually the pro-life movement. There was another group that was othered. And so, in, in a certain way, even that ministry led me <laughs> into uh, where I find myself now in El Paso, uh, 640 miles southwest of where I was in Dallas, on the border where our, our life is seeing people pass through our, our community. And so here you are now in El Paso, accompanying our immigrant brothers and sisters. Share with us a little bit about how your heart has been moved in this, this experience. Very much so. I feel so privileged to be here, really. A lot of people, when they meet me and they hear that I'm from El Paso, they've been watching the news, you know, and all these reports that kind of hype what they call the chaos on the border and so on. It is a challenge. I won't deny that, to, to care for people who are coming through. But I feel so privileged. But I mean, it's just so uh, obvious there that we have people who are among the poorest of the poor. We live up to our name. We're a place of passage, El Paso. To meet these people, I am inspired every day. What you've talked about in your experience, it kind of touches on a, a huge theme of our uh, podcast where we were telling people that what you can do to help out is just keep a level of compassion and compassion for human life. And that goes a long way. I mean, to me, if people clicked onto that idea or, you know, joined the bandwagon, maybe some of this wouldn't be so difficult to navigate. People think this issue is so complex, you know, and certainly immigration law is extremely complex. I've heard it described as the next most complicated thing to the uh, tax code. It, it is terribly complicated in that regard. But in terms of the Christian's response, it's just not that complicated, folks. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love as I have loved you. 
forgive and you will be forgiven. Uh, but what is the church doing? First thing we're doing is loving and showing compassion for people who are in need. Jesus really didn't put many limits on that that I can see, and uh, I haven't found the fine print to this point either. We have talked a number of times on this podcast that our gospel call and, uh, you know, really just saying, what what are we about? And it is living that to provide shelter when we speak of that, that dignity and the sanctity of life. You know, so therefore, really, as you're saying, our faith um, does not allow us to deny food or to deny shelter um, simply because someone doesn't have the right papers, that our gospel call is to respond with, as you say, love and compassion. One of the things in trying to permeate change in this issue is maintaining a level of fair treatment. And, and how do you do that? And like you said, Bishop Seitz, it's such it's a complex thing to talk about in regards to law. But as far as making the decisions to help people, it's, it's very basic. And I found it amazing through talking to my family and friends. And as we're talking about fair treatment, treatment of migrants, once I start telling them, you know, about how the laws are, as far as like you get a worker's permit, it doesn't give you the classification to get a driver's license. And as you start explaining this to people, the number one comment I get, well, that's not fair. That's right. I think one thing I hear a lot is follow the law, follow the law, right? You know, there's a there's a higher law that we often seem to forget about. We, we make it as though every human law is going to reflect what is real, truly right and just, or that somehow it will make it right and just. And that just isn't the case. Now, of course, we citizens want to give every benefit of the doubt to any law, and we want to do our best to follow those laws. But when it comes to a conflict between what the Lord says and what the legislature says, well, sometimes we're going to have to make a choice that that may put us at odds with, with a law that clearly is not an expression of the law that is from God. You know, some, when you were speaking about that, uh, how many times, too, with the laws, we change the goalposts. We, we keep moving it. How do we really compromise and work together to create laws that will benefit everyone? And that takes time and deliberation to be able to, to do that. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, we need politicians who are also statesmen, right, who will th- rise above the fray and look for what is truly for the benefit of all the people. One thing perhaps we've also forgotten is that if a person doesn't have papers, if they've entered without being processed, that doesn't take away their fundamental human rights. They still have rights, and our courts have upheld upheld those rights. I don't think they've upheld them as much as they should, but you know, at least they've recognized that being on the other side of the border doesn't make them a Martian. And it doesn't make them a criminal. That That's one thing we pointed out, like that violation of not having papers. I, I don't think it's right to clump that into a criminal offense. And, it, and it's not even legally right, because if a person crosses the border 
between courts and and they do it without being processed it's a misdemeanor uh, you know the and a border is a human creation and while the church certainly upholds the right of a nation to have a, a border and, and an orderly process to cross it we've never said that it is one of these absolutes that should have been included in the ten commandments there are reasons that people might have to cross a border without permission and and that is we have seen a lot of changes in that. I think of the days in um, the 1990s when I lived in Guatemala and the young people who would come up, it was mostly for work. But now we do see that and we hear about the asylum seekers, those who are fleeing, um, who are being forced to stay in another border, on the other side of the border, in an area that also is very violent and dangerous. And we're asking them to use, uh, um, what is the app now that they are the CBP1. First of all, you have to have a phone and you have to be able to navigate using the telephone to call to secure an appointment so that they can present themselves at a border point of entry as someone seeking asylum. You, you leave, you flee, you, you go with the clothing on your back. So when they then, um, finally secure that appointment, you know, they have to show a credible fear and prove that. Again, we make it so complicated and difficult for people who are already suffering. Right. And those who who do have their papers, it's not unusual at all for them to be stolen on the way because these same criminal gangs that they're fleeing sometimes will um, will take everything that they have. And if it's not the criminal gangs, it could be the police stealing their their uh, passport and, and what have you. Uh, these are the poorest of the poor. They have nothing that says who they are, where they belong, what's their home. If we can't have compassion for people like this who have nothing and no assurance of what tomorrow will bring, I really worry about our hearts. Sometimes I think, too, that there's this tension between politics and policy. Um, and the, even the politics, sometimes I wonder what's underneath that, if, if it's as much xenophobia and fear of the unknown, fear of those who are different from us. And then we end up using policies as ways to control that population. It makes me think of Title 42 and how that was implemented. You know, yes, it was implemented on the onset of the pandemic. It was really came out of a public health order, but the damage it did in terms of the lives of our immigrant brothers and sisters. And even in terms of the concern we have, by the way, sister, I thought your point about fear being at the base of practically all of this to be very true. The situation at the border can be managed in a way that people are given the opportunity to come when we have a need for workers here and to come when they have a need to seek asylum at the same time as we're dealing with the root causes in the sending countries. And then what happens? Who is crossing between the ports? The only ones crossing between the official entry places would be people who are wanting to do it for nefarious reasons. And then our border enforcement folks can do their job and they can deal with those few people 
who are seeking to cross in, in the, those ways. When I was preparing for today's episode, I remembered on episode two, uh, Sister Jean Ersfeld brought up a document from 2003 that was put out by the bishops of U.S. and Mexico called Strangers No Longer, Together on the Journey of Hope. And, and I just remember thinking, why hadn't I heard of it before? And also, why isn't this document used as a starting point to enact change to help undocumented migrants? That's a very big question, right? And of course, I'll return us to that simple answer we gave at the beginning. Live the gospel. Live like a Christian. Please try it. <laughs> you know, Listen to an immigrant sometime. Hear their story. But um, when you also touch on legislation and so on, right now, I've come to the conclusion, and, and I, I also have a responsibility as the chair of the Migration and Refugee Services Committee of the Conference of Bishops. One of my priorities, I we used to think if we just talk enough to legislators, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate and the president and so on, maybe they'll get it and they'll change. Now I see, no, they're listening to the voters. And so the urgent task is to do exactly what we mentioned earlier, to go to the roots in this country and help people to understand about this, the realities that surround this situation. I do believe that people have good hearts, but it's a, a big task that, that all of us have to undertake. That is why I'm so grateful for your voice, Bishop Seist, that your voice is very loud and clear to us as Catholics and to the American people. Because we need leaders also who are willing to state their beliefs and remind us what the gospel is saying. Part of our reason for having this podcast, which is based on a corporate stance that we have as School Sisters of Notre Dame, to educate, to hope to move hearts and minds of our brothers and sisters who are Catholic. And even statistics will tell us that the majority of U.S. citizens believe that there should be a path forward. They want the immigrants and the asylum seekers and refugees to do it legally, but that's where we need to move Congress to give them a legal path to, to documentation, a legal path to citizenship. Amen. That's a great work, sister. I really appreciate it and grateful to your entire community. I don't know if there's anything else before we come to the end of this that you would like to, to share with our audience, Bishop. I, I think we've had a wide-ranging conversation and we've touched on many of the issues that we can in a short amount of time. Please pray for for me, pray for even more for uh, our immigrant brothers and sisters. Pray that God will move your heart and show you uh, what you can do to really make this world a place that reflects the kingdom of God. Um, we always end our um, episodes, our podcasts with a, with a prayer. And, and actually what you just shared was really a, a, a prayer for us and with us. So I'd, I'd, could you lead us in that formal prayer then, Bishop? I'd be happy to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God of love and compassion, may we always recognize your spirit in the refugee family, seeking safety from violence, in the migrant worker, bringing food to our tables, in the asylum seekers, 
seeking justice for their families, and the unaccompanied child traveling in a dangerous world. Give us hearts that break open whenever our brothers and sisters turn to us. Give us hearts that no longer turn deaf to their voices in times of need. Give us eyes to recognize a moment for grace instead of a threat. Give us voices that fail to remain silent, but which decide instead to advocate prophetically. Give us hands that reach out and welcome, but also in work for a world of justice until all homelands are safe and secure. Bless us, O Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, um, Bishop, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us on this podcast. And we do hold you in prayer and for the work that you, you are about for our brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you all. Yes, thank you so much, Bishop Seitz, for being on the show today. Uh, and I also want to thank our audience for joining us and joining us the whole season. Uh, this has been such a fulfilling season and project for us to work on. And um, we'll be coming back winter of 2024 with season four, where we'll be tackling the topic of racial justice. Thank you for listening to Call to Action. We hope you enjoyed Season 3. Please stay tuned for updates on Season 4, which will return in early 2024. You can listen to past and current episodes of Call to Action by visiting ssndcp.org forward slash call to action or by following us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your support, and remember to follow the School Sisters of Notre Dame Central Pacific Province on Facebook to stay up to date on Call to Action.